Welcome to Careers in Discovery, your window into the world of leaders in pharma and biotech. Brought to you by Singular Talent, making hiring better for organizations involved in drug discovery and R&D. Dean Edney is the Senior Vice President and Global Head of Process R&D at Sci Life Sciences, a rapidly growing CDMO with real ambition. Dean joined us on Careers in Discovery to discuss his journey so far, as well as process chemistry and the unique scientific challenges it presents, how a love of learning has driven his career, and moving from a major global farmer to an up-and-coming organisation. This week, I am with Dean Edney of Sci Life Sciences. Dean, welcome to Careers in Discovery. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be here. Great to have you on the show. Um, Dean, I thought we'd talk a little bit by talking about Sci. Um, obviously, a company that's relatively new to the UK physically, but is a much, much bigger organization globally. So it'd be great for those who might not know to talk a bit about the company, first of all, and, and the work that you're doing there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, Sci Life Sciences is a full-service contract research development manufacturing organization focusing on um, small molecule drug substance api um, research development manufacturing it's uh, an organization as you say that's probably not well known in the uk but does mm-hmm. have a, a really strong track record it's the organized organization was founded in india 20 years ago in fact the organization celebrated its 20th anniversary in 2019. Okay. Uh, so a really strong track record um, of working in the CDMO space with a, a global customer base over that 20-year period. So working with customers that range from small biotechs through um, mid-sized pharma all the way up to big pharma and a mm-hmm. number of, of big pharma clients. So Sci works with those organizations to provide contract research in terms of contract medicinal chemistry services mm-hmm. and also contract uh, process development and manufacturing. So we have a, a range of projects that span from medicinal chemistry all the way through to commercial manufacture of commercial intermediates um, and starting materials for, for new medicines moving forward. Yes. Okay. Size and organization, size wise, about 2,000 people um, Mm -hmm. globally, of those, about 700 in our R&D functions, Mm. um, housed the vast majority of people currently based in India, um, in and around Hyderabad. So we have an R&D site in Hyderabad um, where there's over, over 500 staff. Mm-hmm. But obviously, as an organization, we're a chemistry-based organization, so vast majority of our staff are in the chemistry area, um, and also a manufacturing facility about 140 kilometers northwest of Hyderabad as well. Okay. So I started as, a, as an Indian-based organization, um, but has a, a real ambition from a growth perspective and just within the last sort of 12 months has been really evolving into a global organization so strongly rooted in india but recently um size and organization has started a biology facility on the east coast of the us in in boston cambridge massachusetts um small biology facility providing um 
assay testing etc to the very i guess very dynamic biotech uh, infrastructure that's there on the east coast mm. of the u.s and also the west coast of the u.s too um, and also most recently and i guess this is where i come into the picture we've also started a new process r d facility in Oldsley park uh, yes. in manchester um so yeah size strong track record but huge ambition and and growth moving forward and as i say evolving into a, a global organization <laughs> Absolutely. And so you've touched on this, but perhaps you could tell us a little bit, Dean, about your role. You've joined as Senior Vice President and Head of Process R&D. And within that, um, perhaps you could talk a little bit about Oddly Park and, and the move there and um, what you're building there. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I joined SAI just over six months ago. Um, mm -hmm. I was really, find myself really fortunate to be offered the position to take up this global head of process R&D role, mm -hmm. um, working with SAI as part of their planned expansion. Um, I think that SAI, the senior leadership team in SAI recognized that as they were expanding, they needed to bring in some experience and some roles that provided that sort of global oversight and global spanning role. So they created the the global head of process R&D role that I, I took on in January. And it's a role yes. which I have accountability for our process R&D teams. They are um, multidisciplinary teams, both out in Hyderabad in India, and also the team that we is now up and running. We started in Alderley Park. Mm -hmm. So these teams are mixtures of synthetic organic chemists, process engineers, and analytical chemists. Mm -hmm. So my department has around about, just probably around about between 250 and 300 people. Okay. Um, vast majority of them currently uh, based out in Hyderabad. have a, a, a large and strong team out in Hyderabad of over 250 scientists, um, which, as I say, is the, the heart of size R&D organization. Yes. But recently also started the new R&D facility up in Alderley Park, where we have a team currently of about 17, which will grow mm -hmm. to 25 by the end of the year. Again, a, a multidisciplinary team of chemists, engineers, and, and analysts. Yes. And I guess the the concept around the team in Alderley is about extending size reach um, into Europe and the US. I already have a, a strong global customer base, as I said, with, with plenty of European and US clients. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think we've identified is that sometimes the distance and the time, distance, the, the, um, time zone distance difference also cause can can lead to some uh, difficulty around communication right and, yes and the opportunity with Alderley is to have um, part of the Sci r and d organization here in the uk would make those interactions with our european and us clients that little bit easier with respect to the time difference mm -hmm. but also a facility which for our uk and european clients is right on the doorstep um, very easy to um, arrange meetings and I guess once the coronavirus situation yeah. is resolved, <laughs> um, also visit, um, not having to spend you know multiple hours on a flight out to India, for example. So the, 
the facility at Alderley is uh, very much an expansion of mm -hmm. our process R&D capability, but one that was very specifically targeted from a geographical perspective in terms of providing those advantages to our clients, but also tapping into, providing the opportunity for us to tap into the sort of skills base in the UK and Europe as well when recruiting yes. people into that particular group. Makes sense. And um, you, of course, we'll get into this in a bit more detail uh, later on, but you, of course, moved over from GSK, where you've been for a number of years. Mm -hmm. um, much bigger organization and obviously a pharma company as opposed to a CRO. Mm -hmm. um, has it been very different, Dean? Has it been quite a, quite a change for you? It has been radically different, <laughs> Tom. I would say I absolutely went into it with my eyes open. I was expecting mm -hmm. it to be radically different. Um, I was not disappointed. And that was one of the attractions, to be honest, in terms of the move, doing something a little bit different and bringing what I'd learned previously in my career uh, to Sai to help Sai with their, their ambition of growth. Um, yeah, very, very different. I would say the two things that have really struck me in terms of the difference is that's probably one thing that boils down to one thing in two areas. For me, the difference is in the pace. Right. So within the, within the CDMO space, um, time is a premium. The speed at which we need to deliver the projects that we have to our customers and clients is of a pace which is much, much faster mm -hmm. than the pace that you see in a big farmer. So I guess it's more about focused on that short-term delivery to the customer for a specific project as opposed to a large farmer where you've got that site of the, the whole project's life cycle in which to do your process R&D. Yes. So at GSK, the, the timelines and, and our plans for our process R&D were driven by that end-to-end -end development of a new medicine, which, as you and I'm sure your listeners know, is, is quite an extended period. Mm -hmm. So the pace of which we were doing our development very much fitted into those particular research programs in a big pharma organization. In a CDMO, it's about delivering to the customer's requirement. And if the right. customer's requirement is, here's a piece of chemistry that we've run in the lab, we need you to make five kilos in the next, by, by 10 weeks time, then that's what we have to do. Yes. And we have to figure out how we can get from A to B um, with minimal risk, but deliver to those timelines. So the pace is very different in terms of project delivery. I think the pace is also very different in terms of decision-making. Mm -hmm. So again, large, very large organization to a much smaller organization. And I think this was very much, um, uh, I, I felt this within my first couple of months in the role and mentioned earlier, the coronavirus situation, you know, we can't ignore that. I, yes. was, I was enrolled when the lockdown in India happened, mm -hmm. um, when the Indian government announced the lockdown because of the coronavirus situation back in, I guess it was March. Um, and that sort of, caught everybody actually in India by surprise a little bit. Mm. Um, and I was, I felt my, I was very fortunate to be part of the team that inside that was looking at how we dealt with that. Um, and given my previous experience in GSK, I was astounded by how quickly SI as an organization dealt with that pretty right. significant change um, with respect to the situation, both in terms of huge and this, we'll probably talk about this in a second, but mm. one of the things that attracted me to Sai was their culture. Very, 
very, very strong focus on uh, safety and quality as well as delivering to the customer right. um, and very much top of the priority list as part of the coronavirus situation for the side leadership team was the safety of mm. our employees um, and then followed very quickly by being able to continue to, do, to deliver our commitments to our customers. So within um, having taken a week from that lockdown announcement to uh, ask everybody to stay at home and assess the situation, we very quickly moved to implementing different ways of working yeah. that allowed the SAI organization to be back to almost full capacity within a month of that lockdown being announced, but not just back to full operational capacity, but doing so in a, in a safe way and a socially distant way. And that uh, getting that turnaround in that short space of time was another example of how things are very different from a yeah. CDMO to a, a large farmer organization. I think it's certainly been one of the things that I've noticed during the lockdown. We've spoken with a number of CROs, CDMOs, um, and of course, you know, closing the lab for a service organization is a very different decision than for a biotech company or for a pharma company, right? You, you know, your customers will go elsewhere yep. and it's very difficult to get them back if they do that. Um, and it, what's been amazing is that a lot of companies have been able to continue operating their labs at 90, 95, perhaps even hundred percent capacity in a safe way in labs that were just not designed for social distancing, right? A lot of these labs are designed to get as much equipment, as many scientists in there as they previously safely could. Mm. Um, but that safely has become the operative word even more so now, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that, there are ways around it, I think. You're right, there was very much a necessity driving it. Mm. But again, I've been very, very impressed by the way in which mm -hmm. not only, this was not only about thinking about what we needed to do, but then implementing it um, in India with a large, large organization and lots of learnings then that we could apply to our team in, in Alderley Park as well and take, take a similar approach to the point where you know, we've been, as a, as a scientific community, um, whether we be research chemists or development chemists, I think we're all finding our way about how to work safely in this new normal. Yes. And, and it's been great to have the, had the opportunity to reach out to former colleagues in Big Pharma and, and share the approaches that we've been taking that are working for us and, and likewise share that learning. And I think it's great to see the community working together proactively to identify the best practice, mm. um, whether we're working in a Big Pharma or a, or a CDMO. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that the um, openness to collaboration has been fantastic um, across, across the board. Um, one of the reasons, Dean, I was really keen, and you touched on it a little bit there, but one of the reasons I was really keen to get you on the show is that a lot of the time when we've talked about chemistry on careers in discovery, we've tended to talk about research chemistry, particularly medicinal chemistry and, and organic synthesis. Um, you've spent your career very much in, in process chemistry, CMC, API development, the other side of, of chemistry in the industry, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I, I was, perhaps this will lead us on to a conversation about your career and your career journey, but um, could you talk a little bit about development chemistry in industry and you know what you've seen through your career on that side of things and um i guess development chemistry as a career yeah absolutely and probably the best way to do that tom is actually to to start with what attracted me yeah, to great. process chemistry 
um, which goes all the way back. So yeah, um, as of this year, 27 years mm -hmm. um, in the process, research and development um, in industry in that area. Mm. Um, it, it does take us all the way back to that 27 year point. So I, I did my degree and PhD at Nottingham University. Mm -hmm. um, I guess my philosophy around my career has been about always making sure I'm doing something that I enjoy doing. And one thing that I enjoy doing is I love learning. I love right. learning new things. Um, my, so my early career choices were just driven by, I really love chemistry. I want to learn <laughs> more about chemistry. Yes. So I did a degree. Um, I finished my degree, and at that point, I really, really enjoyed organic chemistry, and particularly synthetic organic chemistry. So mm -hmm. the next logical thing to me was to learn more about that by doing a PhD. I think it's fair to say by the end of my PhD, which was a mixture of natural product synthesis and, and some, um, some other areas, I, I was still enjoying learning about chemistry, but I was getting a little bit jaded with just making smears of material around the bottom of round bottom flasks. So anybody right. that's been a chemist will know that you, you put your heart and soul into doing a sequence of reactions, um, particularly in a research environment, and you end up with 10 or 20 milligrams. Mm. And then by the time you've completed all your analysis on that 10 or 20 milligrams, you, you need to go back to the beginning and make some more. Mm -hmm. um, and my PhD taught me that maybe I wasn't that interested in small-scale chemistry, but I was still loving chemistry as a, as a subject. I, I feel that I was very lucky in the final year of my PhD. We actually had a, a team from Pfizer at the time come and spend a day with my um, colleagues and I that were doing PhDs at the time, right. and who told us a little bit about process chemistry and what process chemistry was. And it's fair to say I hadn't really heard about it or considered it previously, I think. Mm -hmm. In academia, there's a very strong focus on medicinal chemistry in mm. academic courses, whether they be undergraduate or even you know, PhD areas of focus. Not so much is sort of shared, taught, communicated about process chemistry. For me, a light bulb went on. I could see that I could continue learning about chemistry by by moving into a career in process R&D, right. I could continue my love of synthetic organic chemistry, but do it on a larger scale. Hmm. And there was also an attraction of also learning more about the aspects of scale up. So if I, if I compare medicinal chemistry with process chemistry, one of my areas of interest throughout my career has been working at interfaces. Mm -hmm. And you know, I would say as a medicinal chemist, one of the key interfaces is back into the biology team and into DMPK. So the interface there between chemistry and biology is an area of focus for a medicinal chemist. Yes. I think for a process chemist, for me, the interesting area of interface was between um, chemistry and chemical engineering mm -hmm. um, and learning those skills that would allow me to take a reaction that I'd done on 100 mils in the lab and run it on a hundred or a thousand liters in a pilot plant or a manufacturing facility. And at the start of my career, that, that ability to continue my love of chemistry, but with a new area that I hadn't really explored, pulled me in. And, and I guess I've been here ever since. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what is it that, because your role will be very different now, uh, I'm sure, but what is it that keeps you engaged with it now, Dean? 
I think it's it's back to that love of learning, I think. Yeah. So I can I can honestly say in my twenty-seven years in this particular area, I have learned something new every single day. Mm. Sometimes that's something new from a science perspective. Sometimes it's something new about our ways of working or the way in which we scale up. Sometimes it's something new about the products we're working on or the people that I'm working with. Um, but yeah, huge amount of variety um, as a process chemist, lots of different interfaces, not just, I guess I described the chemical engineering interface, which for me was that first area of learning. How do you take chemistry from the lab into a pilot facility and then into mm -hmm. manufacturing? But beyond that, not just that, also thinking about particle formation, crystallization, how do you get your product out at the end of the day and, and in some ways when we think about process chemistry and medicinal chemistry the area of overlap is the reaction so we're all focused on doing the best reaction we can i think as a process chemist we spend a lot more time thinking about how do we get our product out of that reaction at a quality and a yield that allows us to be to be viable moving forward so the, the crystallization piece is another area of interest and learning alongside also the analytical chemistry as well. So again, lots of interfaces within the process chemistry group, lots of, lots of things to learn. Yes. And I suppose it continues that thread though, from, you know, medicinal chemistry all the way through to, to production in that your, your challenge remains, how do we make this? And this changes, right? But mm -hmm. the, the, the question is kind of, consistent yeah you i mean you're right that this definitely changes but i think mm. you know, what, what's also interesting to reflect on is you said how do we make this and that this changes but i think we're also seeing the how changing as okay well. so your new manufacturing technologies over the last maybe 10 years or so maybe more you know the introduction of biotransformations the use of enzymes to do transformations for us again mm -hmm. taking that um, academic concept and understanding how do you scale that up and use it in a manufacturing environment and also more and more the use of continuous manufacturing flow chemistry mm -hmm. so as well as so those areas and then i guess going back in the other direction to some extent also high throughput chemistry so how can we do our experimental work quicker with less material but still get high quality results so yeah i think over the course of my career the the how do we make this this has changed multiple times but the mm. how has changed as well and that's been part of that ongoing growth and i think for a successful career whether it be in medicinal chemistry or process chemistry for a successful career in in pharmaceutical r&d you have to have that love of learning and an ability and a desire to keep learning throughout your career yes yeah absolutely and it'd be useful to understand the journey a little bit dean so we talked about your phd at nottingham um you you got this sort of taste of of process chemistry and, and had an idea that it was for you. Um, talk us through the next bit. You know, how did you end up at GSK? And then, and then talk us through your time there. Mm, yeah, sure. So at the end of my PhD, I knew that I wanted a, a process job, a job in process R&D. Mm -hmm. So I, my applications, job applications at the end of my PhD were purely focused on process roles. At the time, back in, you know, 
at the early 90s, there were a lot more opportunities than there are in the UK these days with, with respect to the number of uh, pharma organizations that were out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I applied to all of them. I was lucky to land a process um, research and development role within Wellcome as it was then yes down in dartford in kent so the welcome organization was a relatively small um farmer organization with research in beckenham in kent and then um, process r d and manufacturing in dartford so two sites um, so i joined the dartford site back in 1993 uh, that couldn't have been a better choice i didn't realize it at the time um, but from a career choice perspective joining a smaller organization and also an organization and a site which had everything from chemistry process R&D all the way through the pharmaceutical manufacturing process to shipping packed medicine off the site. Mm-hmm. It was a great environment to start my career. So I could, I was working in a laboratory, I could cross the road and be in our pilot, API pilot plant Right. I could cross, cross the next road and be in a, an API manufacturing building. And a five-minute walk took me to uh, formulation development and mm. manufacturing. So to have the, the entirety of the downstream pharma business on one site at the start of my career was a fantastic development opportunity. And uh, great to get my hands dirty there. Yes, um, and really learn learn the reality of process R and D in an industrial environment, but working alongside colleagues that were also in manufacture. So, as yeah. a process chemist, our ultimate goal is to take our processes into manufacture, and to be rubbing shoulders with them on a daily basis. You know, in the in the coffee room and at lunch, mm. uh, really gave me early on in my career a great insight into what was important for a manufacturing process which in turn informed the work that i did as a process r&d chemist yeah it, it must be really helpful to physically see that context because i suppose you can you can theoretically understand it or perhaps you don't if you work in isolation right but understanding okay well this is where we need to end up and being able to point to that building (laughs) yeah i mean there's nothing quite like developing a process in the lab that you think is working fine Mm. and then taking it into a pilot facility or a manufacturing facility and having to stay up all night because your filtration is taking way longer than it did on scale than it did in the lab Right. That's just an example of filtration. There could be many other things uh, that don't quite work according to plan when you scale up and actually doing that in person and, and living through the decisions that you make in the lab and the impact they have when you scale up and take them into manufacture is the best way to learn about how to develop a good process. Yes. Yeah, makes sense. And I appreciate I'm asking you to condense quite a lot here, but talk us through talk us through your career at GSK and, and the different steps that you took there. Yeah, I would say fairly, maybe standard, maybe not, um, career trajectory in terms of responsibility. Mm-hmm. So I went from a laboratory chemist. After a few years, I, w- I had the opportunity to lead a project and, and then from there had a small team Uh, The team size grew, so my overall accountability with respect to leading projects and leading people was a sort of general linear growth over over my period in GSK. I would say maybe what slightly different was that I would say throughout my career in GSK, I oscillated between 
my love of process chemistry and I guess my my love of learning new things, which mm. took me into the field of um, CMC technical leadership and product development leadership. So I started as a chemist um, and learned what it meant to be a process chemist and then had opportunities not only to lead teams of chemists, but to, to lead teams of product development scientists. So also thinking not only about the chemistry of the scale up and development of the drug substance, but also the drug product. Yes. Um, and spent, as I say, I oscillated between being deeply involved in process chemistry and having a broad leadership role across mm-hmm. multidisciplinary teams, which spanned um, from working, leading um, early phase discovery um, projects all the way through to working with teams that were finalizing and validating secondary manufacturing processes for new oral solid dose products on a secondary manufacturing site. So yeah, quite a variety. Um, I would say always always led by my love of learning new things, Uh Um, but it gave me over my time in GSK, it gave me a real combination of a depth in chemistry but a breadth in terms of understanding the drug development process in its broadest sense yeah and i think staying with that theme of of learning new things so clearly there was different things that that you had to learn right so you, you had to continue learning about chemistry you had to continue learning about pharmaceutical development and manufacture and and the broader context and then you know probably quite a bit more detail about cmc and and things like that um but then also you're learning this leadership side of it whether that's project leadership or people leadership Mm. um did that come fairly naturally was that was that an easy skill to develop for you i know some people take to it more than others yeah i would say if you were to speak to some of the people that have been in my teams in the past, they would probably describe me in inverted commas as a people person mm-hmm. in general. So to your question, I feel personally, obviously maybe have a, a biased view. <laughs> um, I feel that those people leadership skills were almost natural within me. And it was mm-hmm. about understanding how to take that natural style um, and build it into that sort of scientific environment i think as a as an in, as a leader of people there are a couple of things that i've always kept at the forefront of my mind mm. um, so a couple of points maybe that might be useful to, to sort of share with you as a matrix leader so when i was leading cmc technical teams of multidisciplinary teams mm-hmm. i always saw myself as actually part of the team yeah. So for me, the leader of the team is just a member of the team that has a slightly different role to other members of the team. And that's, that's always been my philosophy as a matrix leader throughout my career, mm-hmm. to, be, to be part of the team, to be in there with the team, um, helping the team to solve the problems it needs to solve, but also as the leader being the voice of the team when necessary. So for me, my matrix leadership style is is founded on that, I guess, that simple principle of, of being a member of the team with a different role. And that's always served me well um, in terms of building teams that were effective. Yes. Um, as, a, as a people leader and as a line leader, 
for me, the philosophy there has been uh, as a leader that supports their organization. At the end of the day, and you mentioned it earlier, my role now is very different to my role when I started. Mm-hmm. Um, as, a, as a senior leader, you can't actually influence directly very much that is going on in an individual project. Right. You can provide guidance, you can provide advice, you can provide support, but you're not in the lab with your sleeves rolled up doing the experiment yourself. Mm-hmm. So as a leader of, of people, for me, it's about being a leader that supports that organization. So I'm here to ensure the people in my organization have what they need to deliver to the best of their ability. And sometimes that's about setting clear objectives and strategy. Sometimes it's about providing the right equipment and facilities. Sometimes it's about providing the right training, learning opportunities and support. And sometimes it's about um, taking the heat um, and running interference and taking the flack when things are not going wrong and allowing the teams the time to do what they need to do to put it right. Yeah. No, understood. And have you ever found, and the answer to this may be no, they may go very much hand in hand, but where you've had people in your line function involved in your matrix teams, is there ever any, not conflict between those, but do, do those two roles interact with each other and, and are they difficult to balance at times? They, they do interact with each other as a line leader with a team of chemists who was also a matrix project leader on a project the easiest thing in the world is to have one of your chemists being the chemist on the project because you've got that direct interaction Mm -hmm. um did it ever cause any conflict not for me particularly um i always try to separate those two things um so particularly if i was a matrix leader and one of my team was the rep on the project, then I would often, if not always, delegate all of the scientific decision-making for that chemistry discipline into that individual. And I would Mm -hmm. focus in that particular team environment, I would focus purely on being, on on covering the matrix leadership. Any any technical input would come from the individual um, in the chemistry line Yes, they would be reporting into me, but that was about our working relationship and me empowering that individual to take that leadership. And again, it comes back to what I was saying as a line leader, support that individual in that role, not tell them what they need to do, but get them to think about what they need to do and support them in taking that forward. And having that supportive line leadership approach made that matrix leadership potential um, interaction easier to manage, I think. Yes. Yeah, it makes sense. And something that you've come back to a few times there is, is this learning and development element, both for yourself and for your teams. Yeah. Um, so it's clearly something that's important to you. And as you mentioned before, it, it kind of drove a lot of the initial choices in your career and, and throughout. Um, I was interested in the things that you've done, first of all, to maintain your own development. Um, and the things that you've done to keep learning yourself. And also, I guess, how you've implemented those things into your teams and, and how you've driven learning and development for your teams. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think for myself, um, it's, I think the difficulty for myself has always been about trying to carve out enough time 
Mm. for personal development having said that um for me personally the vast majority of my learning and development has come through the opportunities that i've been lucky enough to to secure right. whether that be moving from um, a purely chemistry environment into a cmc leadership environment where i needed as you said needed to learn about formulation and clinical manufacture etc so a lot of my personal learning has been driven by the different roles and that continues through to today right the i'm still learning massively about what it means to be working in a cdmo organization for example. Mm -hmm. so my uh, the opportunities and the roles that i've had in my career have naturally driven the learning for me to be effective in those roles i've had to learn and right. I've, and actually for me it's a real motivator to be on a learning curve and actually when i get to the top of that learning curve and things flatten out that's the point it tells me i need to maybe consider doing something different mm -hmm. and sometimes those learning curves have been frighteningly steep and sometimes <laughs> they've been more gentle um, but nevertheless there's always been that learning curve and i think my my personal development has always been driven by those roles more than than any specific approach i would yes. say um in terms of personal development for my teams for me this comes down to um having a real open and honest conversation a one-to-one -one conversation with those individuals and maybe prompting them to think about their own career more than they have to date mm. so I, I often challenge people with questions that a lot of people don't enjoy in terms of okay so we know what job you're doing now mm. we know what um, you need to learn to do that job effectively and that's quite clear and most people are, are on top of that they understand the job they're doing they're doing they understand the gaps they've got and they understand how they're going to close those gaps because they're in the role so they know what they need right. to do to close them i often challenge people with the question of well, okay let's put that to one side um what do you want to be doing in five years time mm -hmm. what does that role look like and some people have an idea many many people do not yes uh, and, and just challenging people i guess in a in a coaching type relationship to to think a bit more deeply about not only the role they're doing, but the role they would like to do in the future and almost understanding what that might look like based on what they've experienced in their career to date, mm -hmm. what they really like to be doing. And sometimes it's what they're currently doing, which is absolutely fine. Sometimes it's a million miles different. And, and for me as a, as a people leader, that personal development discussion, that career development discussion is very much a person to person discussion, not a, uh, you know, an employee of Sci Life Sciences or an employee of GSK. Yes. It's about understanding what's right for that individual. What, where do they want to get to, and how can I, as their manager, help them get there and provide them with the opportunities, the training, the tools that they need to to learn the skills that will allow them to allow them to take the next step but mm -hmm. often the most difficult step in that conversation is the individual reflecting on my question of about okay we know where you are now where do you want to be in five where years do you want to go? yeah yeah absolutely and and a lot of people don't think about that in a proactive way so for me that's it's really important mm. to challenge to get that clear shared view of an individual's um, career aspirations and development path. And once you've got that shared view, both the individual and their line manager, you can work together to, 
to support that journey, whether it, be, as I say, whether it be providing specific training or opportunities to yes. learn some of those skills. Yeah, and that point around direction and vision, I think you know we see it quite a lot that that a lot of people haven't thought about it. You know, it's almost that they're so busy doing their job that they don't mm-hmm. think about their career at times, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but that probably leads us on to my next question, really, and um, that. I was interested in your views, Dean, as you've seen it from both sides, you know, both from your own career and managing other people and helping them with their careers. Are there a few things perhaps that you could share that perhaps you've learned about careers or the key career lessons that you've taken over the years? Yeah, I guess there are there are a couple of points. I mean, we touched on we touched on my leadership philosophy, which I think has mm-hmm. been an important one for me as a people leader. Um, and I think the other thing we've already touched on is, for me, the importance, the value, the impact of personal interactions. I think yeah. that's really important for people to just bear in mind. In terms of general advice with respect to career planning, I would say there are a couple of things that have struck me over the the course of my career. One, and I think this happened to me maybe not consciously initially but later in my career it became more conscious is career planning in segments Mm. so for example i did a phd it took three years i moved into a process chemistry role i say it took me three or four years to really understand what it meant to be a process chemist Mm -hmm. and at that point i moved on to start leading projects again a segment of my career was around leading projects and then from there i stepped into leading CMC teams rather than API teams. Mm-hmm. So I guess it, reflecting on my career, there's definitely been an element of my career running in segments. And I, I now think about, didn't used to, I used to understand the point at which it was time to move into a new area or a new direction based on that learning curve I described a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. You know, when the learning curve starts to flatten out for me, is the time to think about a new challenge. And uh, early in my career, that sort of came naturally. Later in my career, I had to focus on planning that a bit more proactively and think about the timeframes involved. So mm. I would say for me, uh, it's good. I've, I would say I've, my career is broken down into segments that were between three and five years long, mm. depending on the particular roles and the areas of focus. And I think that would be something I would recommend people whether they're early in their career or later, just if they're not already doing it, to just reflect and think about their own careers moving forward in, in that sort of time frame and what they're going to learn in that time frame and where it's going to take them to. Mm-hmm. And, and it comes back to being more proactive, thinking about where you want to go and planning for it as opposed to allowing the organization you're in to direct where you end up. Because absolutely, if you're, if you think about it and you're proactive and you work with, with your organization, then absolutely you should be able to find the way to where you want to be. Whereas if you're passive, you will end up where the organization wants you to be. Rather than yes. where you want to be. So that, that would be one point. The other point I would say for me has been about self-confidence mm-hmm. and being unafraid to step outside of my comfort zone. Um, I mentioned very steep learning curves. Um, so sometimes that's happened. I've stepped outside my comfort zone into a, into a very steep learning curve, but actually um, that those examples have been the most fulfilling and rewarding 
points of my career. So you know, have the courage and confidence in your own ability to take that step outside your comfort zone. Mm. In most cases, if your organization is allowing you to take that step, it won't want you to fail and it will provide you with the support you need to be successful. You just need to have the courage to take that step um, into something new. Um, I guess the final point for me is I'm, I'm always a, a very optimistic glass half full person. Mm-hmm. So for me, I've always seen change as an opportunity, not as a threat. Mm. And again, that, that links back to that self-confidence and stepping outside the comfort zone, but doing it in a positive way and thinking about what opportunity that might provide as opposed to what the risks are in taking that step. Yes. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And I think it's interesting, um, this point about companies will support you in, in taking those steps because I think if you look at big companies particularly, they, they tend to be sort of more structured in how they do this. They deliberately put people into roles that they don't know how to do, don't they? Mm. Um, as part of high potential programs and things like that, they, you know, they move people outside of their comfort zone proactively, um, the ones who, who are more sort of hands-on with it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's always going to be in the company's interest to make sure that you, you do a good job. But I think you know, you're right, and I guess my comments predominantly reflect on my career in GSK, a large structured organization. Hmm. But inside, there's a need as well. To, it comes back to the people piece, right? An organization is only as strong as its people, um, and every organization should be trying to maximize the potential of, of the individuals in it. Mm. So even in a small organization like SAI, there will be opportunities for people to, to grow, take on new, new roles, new opportunities. And again, even a small organization would welcome that because yes. it's about uh, stretching yourself, growing yourself. And if you grow yourself, you become more valuable to the organization as a consequence so you're right lots of structured programs in big organizations but still i i feel plenty of opportunity in smaller organizations yeah and i think on that perhaps sometimes people think that the company won't want them to take that step because it's a risk but then there's always a risk in bringing someone from outside to do that job isn't there and and that is balanced by the fact that in a small organization the people know you and they know what you're about and they know what your character's like and absolutely yeah yeah makes sense so thinking about that idea of segments theme, you're in a new segment of your career now, um, six or so months into it. You've touched on this a little bit, but tell us a bit about what's next for your group and Sai and, and you know, where you're heading with things. Yeah, I guess for me in, in my role in Sai at the moment, the, the, the main area of focus for me is working with the team to make sure that the investments that SAI are making in infrastructure and capability, whether they be in Alderley Park or whether they be out in Hyderabad where we have a new research and technology building coming online in about three or four weeks mm-hmm. um, with huge investment in new equipment, um, new laboratories, purpose-built. It's okay having all the toys um, for effective process R&D, but you need the people that are operating them to not only understand how to work them, but also understand why they're using them. Yes. So for me, I have a pretty detailed change program, um, which is spanning at least until the end of next year, 
uh-huh. covering lots of different areas and it's about the for me it's about supporting sci in its next steps um and its aspirations to be you know a global um process r d organization that's recognized for the quality of its science um and it's working with the teams to upskill to evolve our philosophy of process r d to do that both with the manchester team and the hyderabad team but also to grow a single global process r d organization so the the team in Alderley and the team in Hyderabad both contain fantastic scientists, mm-hmm. but the, the two teams, because of the geography and the background, are slightly different in their approaches, and they each have different strengths and areas for development, and actually bringing those two, two sites together into a single global organization that works together to deliver our projects is is my immediate challenge which is going well as i say lots of programs of upskilling both in terms of the technical piece also in terms of our oversight of the projects making sure we're making the right scientific decisions at the right times in the best interest of our clients also improving the communication piece and and building in some of those people um, aspects we talked about so yes succession planning strategic workforce planning high performing teams some of those softer things are also on my my change plan so yeah plenty of challenge mm-hmm. but plenty of opportunity over the coming 18 months at least for me um to see if i can help Sai achieve its its objective which is to um have had a hand in launching 25 new medicines by 2025 and we're already a good way down that track but yes uh, yeah absolutely that's excellent there's a really clear clear objective there as well which is great to see um and then i guess my final question being is and you may have touched on this already but if there was one thing that you could leave our audience with from a career's point of view perhaps one thought or piece of advice or, or think something that you've learned perhaps that you wish you knew when you were starting out what, what would that be i think for me it would be taking control mm. of your of your own career and by taking control i mean spending the time to think about what the next step looks like before it happens yes um just sitting back and and just carving out a little bit of time a little bit of thinking time to reflect on where you are now and where you want to go and what that path might look like and and just in your own mind try and get that clear picture because if you've got a clear picture in your own mind it allows you then to articulate that to people that can help you on that journey so i would say it's about being clear in your own mind and then taking taking control of that and um, and working with others to help achieve that future vision mm-hmm. perfect point for us to finish on i think dean thank you so much for your time you're very welcome Tom. i've really enjoyed it Thanks for joining us on Careers in Discovery, and don't forget to subscribe for more insight into the world of drug discovery and R&D. Do take a look at our sponsors, Singular Talent, and their mission to make hiring better for companies and individuals in drug discovery and R&D. You can find them at www.singulartalent.io. See you next time.